This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Hey, it's Gregory. And this episode is all about love. So let me confess, I love you. Especially those of you who've signed up for my Substack, my email newsletter. And if you've not signed up yet, no problem. It is actually the perfect time because I just relaunched the Substack with a new name and a new mission. It is called Rough Transition. Not only totally free to join, but if you clicked on this podcast thinking, I want to travel the world through the eyes of other humans, that is what you're going to get in your inbox. More stories, more countries, more tools to see around the world and ourselves, and best of all, more community. Meet other folks who love this kind of global storytelling. And as a thank you, the first 50 people that subscribe today get a free NPR Rough Translation sticker, which will never be reprinted again. No purchase necessary, of course. And signing up is super easy. Just go to substack.com or the Substack app, uh, search for my name, search for Rough Transition. It'll pop right up. If you join the chat or post a comment, it'll come right to me. I will respond. And I would love to see you there. Wanning Sun is a cultural anthropologist from China whose work I have followed for many years. She lives in Sydney, Australia, where she teaches at the University of Technology. She didn't train as an anthropologist, but she kind of fell into that field. And not to play favorites, but accidental anthropologists are sort of my favorite kind. Anthropologists initially were quite suspicious of me. They just think, oh, she's not really an anthropologist. Music to my ears. I called up Wanning because she's got this new book out called Love Troubles, about the love lives and heartaches of Chinese migrant workers. And she tells this one story in the book that touches on a topic I've been thinking a lot about recently, love stories. What they reveal about ourselves and the place we live in ways that can be hard to talk about. So this story, it begins... Yes, it was in a stuffy room, quite stuffy. In a stuffy room in a community center in the shadow of a Foxconn factory in Shenzhen, China. And it was a Sunday, so the workers gathered here, mostly men in their 20s and 30s, were on their day off. Most of them were wearing T-shirt and shorts and flip-flops. But for this casual, attired group, Wanning had some challenging questions to ask. Are you married? Or how many blind dates have you been arranged to go to? Do you ever pay for sex? Or how much intimacy do you think you can enjoy? Have you ever been in love? These are the kind of questions that are very, very difficult for people to ask. Most of these young workers are not married. And unlike a previous generation of migrants, who saved up with factory jobs and then returned to the village to settle down, these workers don't want to live a rural life. They say, I cannot go back to the village, nor can I stay on in a city. But their salary is not enough to put down roots in the city, buy a car, buy a flat, which is often a necessary step to getting married. So that feeling of... Immobility, that feeling of being stuck, is something that previous generations did not have. And Wanik says there is a sense among some middle-class Chinese that these workers are paying a kind of loneliness tax, an emotional cost for being the engine of China's economy. Her previous research had revealed that workers feel this burden of having disappointed their parents and themselves. So she's reluctant to ask them too directly right away about their love and dating lives. 
Instead, she asked them if they know any good love stories. A young man who had, until that moment, was quiet and didn't say anything. He stood up hmm. and he said, "I'd like to share with you my favorite love story." And then he went on to sort of narrate in great detail the stories of the Titanic, the movie Titanic. Titanic, yes. You probably know the 1997 film. I love you, Jack. About a poor artist, Jack Dawson, who wins the heart of a young socialite, Rose Dewitt, on the deck of the Titanic. Jack's the hero, but the workers telling the story use this one Chinese phrase for him. They called him a diaosi, translated into Chinese, is a sociological term that no sociologist would dare to utter the word because it's an extremely vulgar term. It means. The pubic hair that you can find from a male genitalia—that's that, how abject you are. A single pubic hair. That's right. Yes, that's right. From where they're standing, Jack is a single, nasty, totally expendable pubic hair. People use that word to describe themselves. But that word has also been quoted in state newspapers as a term to describe migrant workers. It's actually explicitly expressed a sort of belief that. The existence of a large cohort of sexually repressed single men may be somehow associated with criminality, and that in turn is bad for social stability, which in turn is sort of a threat to the political legitimacy of the government. The government wants more of these workers to go back to the village and get married. Chinese state TV serves up profiles of factory workers who dutifully save up money for years and happily settle down, but when Wanning talks to these workers, they scoff at that love propaganda. Titanic, they tell her, is a far more realistic love story, because at the end of the film, Jack dies, Rose lives, the iceberg—it's like the reality of class that crashes in and puts everyone back in their place. It was promised me that you'll survive and never let go of that promise. Titanic. It's a story usually told as the power of love over class, but in this community center in Shenzhen, I promise I'll never let go. It's transformed into a film about the power of class over love. And even though they identify strongly with Jack, they don't necessarily believe that in real life. That they can meet someone like Rose. Well, when people tell love stories, it sounds like what you found is that people are talking about their philosophy of the world and their faith in the future or their lack of it. Yes, that's right. That's right. Wanik says this was all stuff that she wouldn't have learned if she'd asked her original questions. Are you married? How many blind dates have you been arranged to go to? When people give you a status update, they're telling you how things are for them. When people share love stories. They're letting you see how they maybe hope their lives could be. These migrant workers would rather see themselves not as some sociological problem of the government bureaucrats, but as Jack Dawson, who yes lives a precarious life, but defends that life with more dignity than anyone else on screen. When somebody asked him, you know, who are you, and he basically said, "Yesterday I was sleeping under the bridge." Just the other night I was sleeping under a bridge, and now. Here I am on the grandest ship in the world, having champagne with you fine people. Well said, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Today on Rough Translation, 
what we talk about when we talk about love stories. We have a tale about a mother and daughter who fight over what kind of love story they are part of. And if you are as excited as I am about our newest season, Five Years in the Making, we have a sneak peek of that season, which drops in just two weeks. Stay tuned. Rough Translation, back after this break. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. A few years ago, when Gogo was 24 and living in her own apartment in Beijing, she got a phone call from her mom with a login and a password to an online dating site. And there, Gogo found a profile that her mom had set up for her. It had her photo her bio, and an inbox full of conversations with guys that she had never met. I'm quite shocked because uh, she's using my name. She's misusing my name. This had been going on in secret for months. Her mom set up the account, then messaged with guys pretending to be her daughter. One guy sent a photo of himself playing basketball. Her mom had written back, why do those shorts look like a skirt? Another time, a guy said he was going to Turkey. Her mom said, don't be foolish. My mom said, Turkey is very, very dangerous right now. How did these guys not realize this was a mom? I mean, I will never say something like that. This is like, see, pretending what I will say, but it's totally not me. (laughs) Did you tell your mom, hey, take this down? Several times. That doesn't work. Sometimes she even promised me that I will not do this again. But. Maybe one or two weeks later, she said, hey, I found another guy. Do you want to know him? Now, this was just the start of a year when Gogo would begin to question who she was and what her family and her society expected of her. The reason we know about Gogo's story is that she told it on a podcast in China. Producer Jess Jang spent a lot of time listening to the show in 2019 when we first aired this story. The podcast is called Gushi FM, which means Story FM. It's an independent podcast out of Beijing. Listeners sometimes call in to share their stories. That's how Gogo got on the show. 
And I got curious about this podcast because there aren't that many places in China where people can speak frankly in public. When you think about China's rise from one of the poorest economies in the world to the second largest, it's also meant a huge change in the lives of women. Chinese women in their 20s and 30s are better educated than men their age. They earn a bigger percentage of China's GDP than women in North America do. And Gogo is part of this trend. The way she put it to me was that she was raised in a Western way. She moves to college without her parents helping her. She gets an internship without her parents helping her. She moves to do the internship without her parents helping her. To the big city of Beijing. Right. And she says she always felt like her mom wanted her to be independent. From her perspective, the independence she gave to me, this is to make me a better person, a strong person. Then suddenly when she hits the age of 24, she's back in China after getting her master's degree in the States. And her mom is telling her, all this freedom I gave you has led you the wrong way. She's so much worried about me. She, she thought that I'm so poor. No one is carrying me. I have to do all the things by my own. While Gogo was in the USA getting her degree, her mom in China was hearing reports on TV, reading in the newspaper about this rash of unmarried women. Women in their 20s and 30s, said to be too picky, too spoiled to settle down. They were called shongnu, so leftover women, as if there's an expiration date that these women have passed. But if you dig into the phrase, you find out that what China was worried about was not the unmarried women at all. It was lots of unmarried men, because the one-child policy in China over a generation had led to a surplus of young men, and too many single men in a country spells social unrest. And so the Chinese government was pushing the message, you women have a deadline to get married. I heard about that deadline from my extended family when I visited China, that I need to be married by age 25. So this is Gogo telling her story on the podcast. Her mom is a very persistent person. Gogo says there are tears and yelling. And Gogo's not really used to her mom being involved in her life this much. And so she thinks, I'm just going to go on a few dates, talk to some guys, and tell her it didn't work out. So she decides to talk to one guy, just on text. Mm -hmm. And she casually asks him what he does to exercise. His answer is, I've already told you, it was on my profile. I jog. Oh, he was offended that she didn't do the research on him. Yeah, yeah. And she just thought it was like a really aggressive answer. She just ignores him. His response is, communicating with you is just so hard. And so her response is, ha ha ha, yeah, I feel the same way. And so then she unfriends him on WeChat, after which he starts barraging her with insults. Who do you think you are? You think because you left the country, you're something extra? This is just one guy on the internet. But it's really upsetting to her. She's never done online dating before. Her mom basically pushed her into talking to this guy. So she tries to unregister from that online dating site. But it turns out to unregister, you need two-factor authentication. But the two-factor authentication was with her mom's cell phone. 
So she has to convince her mom to unregister. Her mom says, "I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to force you into doing this." Then, literally days after her mom pledges never again. She's on a new site, again making a profile, again chatting up guys for Gogo to go on a date with. And she's asking Gogo, "Hey, how is it going with this guy or that guy?" Because she has chatted with them first. Yeah, and and her mom also gives them nicknames. There's Xiongheize, who comes from the same hometown as Gogo. So she keeps asking her, "How's it going, Xiongheize?" And then there's a guy who says he works for J.P. Morgan. He works for J.P. Morgan. Yeah, J.P. Morgan guy. Her mom figures they're both in finance. They'll have a lot to talk about. These guys are all in Gogo's social class. They went to top universities like she did. And her mom is thinking that these points of connection are enough. Gogo isn't feeling any chemistry with these guys. She usually ends things after a few dates. But when she complains to her friends and to her mom, she realizes no one is expecting her to be looking for love. Some of my friends, I'm very shocked. They also hold such kind of opinion that love has nothing to do with marriage. Marriage has nothing to do with love. These are two separate things. Her friends tell her, "Don't worry about chemistry. If your backgrounds are compatible, it'll work." They said marriage means that as long as his background. It's fine. Then you can get into marriage. I don't agree on this. She says, my mom starts asking me, "What is your problem? What is your issue?" She says, "I was really close with my mom, but because I can't find a a husband, have I fallen so far in my mom's eyes?" Am I lacking? When she started this whole thing of online dating, she mainly did it to appease her mom. She hadn't expected or really intended for any of these dates to work out. But now, after date after date not working out, it felt like proof that there was something wrong with her, something to be ashamed of. So her mom decides she needs professional help. She takes her to an office in a fancy part of Beijing to meet a matchmaker. The woman tells Gogo, "You don't have to wonder if something's wrong with you. There is definitely something wrong with you." But you don't have to be afraid because we can help you. We have an all-encompassing counseling service. It's called the Gold Tier, and it's like a group dating mixer with 49 pre-selected guys. 49 because seven times seven, and seven is a lucky number in China. And for just fifteen thousand U.S. dollars, Gogo can join this group. And have her own coach, who will not only help her meet her match, but even go further than that, with this guarantee of quality assurance. The quality assurance service. They said that even if you two get married during the marriage, if you have any issues, the consultant will coach you to maintain a 
good relationship. So they'll continue to help you. So like if you have a fight in your marriage about who's taking out the garbage, they'll help you solve that problem. Yeah, something like that. Professional matchmaking services are on the rise in China. As marriage rates have declined, there are more single people. And $15,000 is by far not the high price point of what these places charge. Gogo's mom considers hiring this matchmaker. And Gogo's, in this moment, is thinking, how did I get here? I was this independent woman who could do all of these things on her own, and now I'm this $15,000 problem. Gogo told us when she decided to tell this story on the Chinese podcast, she was worried about saying anything too critical or too challenging of social norms. Like, how much of a woman's decision to get married in China should be based on fulfilling some social duty and how much should be based on what she wants to do. So many episodes on this podcast seem to edge right up to a debate that's happening in Chinese society, but in a way that does not trigger the censors. Like, there's an episode from a guy in Taiwan describing the compulsory military service there. And he talks pretty frankly about what it feels like to one day be a student, the next day a soldier, what it's like to practice with live grenades. He never questions why Taiwan has needed a universal draft, because that would mean talking about tensions between Taiwan and mainland China. Another episode is from a guy who's selected for jury duty in the United States. And he looks around at the other jurors. They're mostly immigrants like him. He never directly compares the judicial systems in the U.S. and China. But see, this is why it's brilliant, because it could be a quiet critique. But it gets through the censors because it's raising questions in people's minds without necessarily answering them. So, for instance, on the podcast, Gogo never uses the phrase leftover women. She doesn't question the expectations put on her. And she doesn't give all the details of how she managed to find her happy ending. Which is that her mom's friend introduced her to a guy that her mom doesn't think that much of. From her understanding, it's just not my cup of tea. The guy is not financially successful. He didn't go to the best university. He's not a guy with the best background. But when Gogo meets him, he's washed his car, he's planned the date. He doesn't expect her to be the only one showing interest, and she doesn't have to work to be open. They date for six months, they fall in love, and he proposes, and they're celebrating their third anniversary this year. Our next love story, well, it starts with the big screen. Arguably the biggest screen for love stories in the world, Bollywood. Writer and journalist Mansi Choksi grew up on Bollywood romances of the 90s, which featured lovers who crossed boundaries of class, but also caste and faith. And then she encountered a gap between the love stories that a nation enjoyed watching I hate you. and the rules of love that everyone seemed to follow. Hindi cinema revolved around like the hopeless romantic. Star-crossed lovers that cross these bridges and divides to be together. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. The idea that love is something worth fighting for. We were the young people that were going to change the way the world works and thinks, and we could do anything. 
and then in reality, the truth is that when you do cross that boundary of tradition, um, you're knocked down and told that actually you cannot do this one thing. And that thing is getting married without your parents' blessing. Exactly. It is the act of disobedience. That is, yeah, that's absolutely it. The real boundary is crossing your parents' will. The real boundary is disappointing them. As a journalist, Monsi would see up close the potential consequences of this act of disobedience. Not many years ago, I actually visited um, a village in Haryana where I stood inside a bedroom where a young woman and her husband uh, were killed by the girl's family. They were from two different castes. Her family had never accepted them. And, uh, you know, the woman was pregnant, um, had been shot to death in their sleep for running away five years earlier. Um, the wall still carried marks, bullet marks. But to her shock and her shame, Monsi didn't feel about this couple the same way she felt for the love stories on screen. You know what it really felt like, to be honest? It felt like a case of really bad luck. It was like a victim-blaming moment that you... That... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish, I, I wish it wasn't that, but that is how it was. You know that this is a red line, and if you're going to cross the red line, um, don't get caught. Mansi's reaction surprised her and led her on a journey to write a book called The Newlyweds, Rearranging Marriage in Modern India, exploring what really happens when love goes off the Bollywood script. I kept going back to this moment. Why was it just so ordinary? The death of these people. Yeah. Why did it feel so unsurprising? This question will lead Monsi and NPR correspondent Lauren Freyer on an epic journey over five episodes. We're going to meet a group that offers protection to these kind of couples and helps them get married without their parents' blessing. But is this group everything they promise? This is our new series from Rough Translation called Love Commandos, coming out in this feed on July 26th. Hey, one more love story before I go, and it's a personal one. One of the hardest things about this show coming to an end at NPR is the possibility of losing the chance to share more of your stories. Some of my favorite episodes have come from listeners. Sometimes I feel like a kind of matchmaker, introducing you to you. It's really fun. I am super proud of the community we've built here. And so if you want to stay part of that community, get access to new stories, new content, be the first to know where we're headed next, Head over to Substack.com or the Substack app, as I mentioned. Hit subscribe so I can keep you posted on new developments, of which there are going to be a lot. Our segment about Story FM was produced by Jess Jang and Autumn Barnes and edited by Sana Krasikov, with help from Karen Duffin and NPR's Beijing correspondent Emily Fang. Mastering by Andy Huther, scoring from Liza Yeager, and the 2023 version of this episode was produced by Elena Torek and Ariana Lee. Adelina Lancianese is our senior producer, Luis Treas is our editor, Liana Simstrom is our supervising producer, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our theme music is by John Ellis. I'm Gregory Warner, back next week with more Rough Translation. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. 
For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.